0: I mean, for, I mean, Prop 13 is the most obvious example. You can feel it at every level. Like when I was five, going to elementary school, um, you know, I remember the PE teachers and the art teachers telling us that, like, you know, we needed to go out and fundraise and go door to door, or else they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't have a job.
1: Welcome to episode six of Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. This is Matt Levin, data reporter with Cal Matters.
2: And I'm Liam Dillon with the LA Times.
1: And Gimme Shelter now on Google Play and enjoyable from your Android device. We we and every and,
2: and every other device now. We'd like any device you could think of. You should be able to find us there, which is awesome. you know great yeah. stuff.
1: Today on the podcast, I'm titling this episode: If Mac Dre were still alive today, he would have moved to Sacramento because he can no longer afford to live in Oakland.
2: It's a long title, but a good but a good a good Mac Dre reference.
1: I'll get it to fit on iTunes <laughs> um, Liam wh- why don't you tell us what were kind of the the new approach we'll be taking with the next few episodes with the podcast
2: so as longtime listeners of the podcast may know uh, <laughs> we're we're now with the legisl- state legislature out out uh, out of season or on recess we're gonna be talking every two weeks to you um, and so uh, as part of that what we decided to do is Kind of take a deeper look at a different region of the state, um, you know, for the foreseeable future to try to dig a little bit deeper into what uh, sort of how state laws and policies interact with some housing issues that are going on um, across the state. And so this week we're starting with the Bay Area.
1: The belly of the beast. And we have uh, probably the perfect person to talk to about how expensive it is to live in the Bay Area, uh, Kim my Cutler.
2: Yeah, so Kim, Kim's a reporter at uh, TechCrunch, or was a reporter at TechCrunch. Was Crunch. a reporter, yeah. Yeah, and now works for a, a venture capital firm. And what she did a number of years ago was produce just a remarkable story, um, uh, and with a remarkable headline uh, involving vomiting era anarchists and burrowing owls uh, regarding the origins <laughs> of the, the housing crisis in the Bay Area, with a particularly interesting focus on how state policies um, sort of got us here. And so we're very excited to have the opportunity to chat with her. Uh,
1: If you haven't read that piece yet, definitely do it. Although I suspect most of the people that listen to this podcast have already read that. Um, Let's uh, begin with our ever popular segment, our Avocado of the Week. Maybe the Sweet Potato of the Week going forward. Um, (laughs) And our Avocado of the Week this week features actual avocados.
2: It was great. Like actual avocados in my hand. It was a, a wonderful Avocado of the Week moment.
1: So take us on a journey down to UC Riverside, Liam.
2: So I spoke at uh, UC Riverside last week. They have a they have a speaker series for, for various uh, policy issues, and they wanted someone to talk about the the, the state housing uh, crisis. And so there I was, um, and uh, did an, a nice long talk about sort of all that passed in the legislature and why more didn't get passed. And and as an added bonus, um, I was handed uh, multiple avocados right off the tree from, from Riverside. And it just, it, it, it was so on brand. Uh, it really made my whole week. So anyway, um, g- you know, getting back to the, the sort of the, the, you know, moving from the, the physical avocado of the week to the metaphorical avocado of the week. Yes, please. Well, uh, while I was, uh, describing the legislation that passed, um, here, uh, a few weeks back, uh, uh, I, I talked about Senate Bill 35, which is the, the streamlining measure—the measure that says, um, you know, if cities that are behind in their housing goals, uh, if uh, if that's the case, then cities also have to approve uh, particular projects that meet underlying density without delay. So, it sort of makes it easier for cities or makes it easier for developers to ensure that their projects would 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 get built. And so, as I was describing this, um, a city official from a, a small community outside Riverside. Uh, had heard about it for the first time in, in my conversation, and then said, "Ah, I know what we're going to do. Um, we are going to downzone." And, <laughs> and uh, you know what that does? Again, SB 35 only applies. Was, was he was he yeah.
1: proud of himself for thinking of that solution when he? I,
2: I, yeah, was it was like
1: a like a spark of genius type moment
2: for I, him. I, I can see the, I can see the light bulb appearing above <laughs> above this person's head when they, they talk described it to me but you know it is it it, it would it would in fact work right I mean mm-hmm. SP 35 only applies um, in on land where where sort of the density matches the project that, that's proposed and so if you're uh, you know a city has land reserved for 100 units uh, 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 condos and um, the developer comes in with that amount then it would it would apply but if, on land if they wanted to build hundred units on land and that's zone for 50 condos. That can't happen, right? Under this plan, and so sort of down zoning or, or making the density smaller on particular parcels is certainly a reaction that we might expect cities to have um, for a uh, for this kind of policy that kind of uh, works to erode some of their some of their power.
1: And that was exactly the fear expressed uh, by proponents of SB 35, how how cities would possibly react, and then also very specifically articulated by Carol Galante on the second episode of the podcast. I mean, she, that was her major concern with how effective SB 35 was going to be.
2: Yeah. And it's very much a cat and mouse game that's been for a long time. I mean, I did a big story over the summer about how state sort of housing planning laws that don't really work, uh, because you have, you know, cities are the ones in charge of actually approving the projects. If they don't want housing, there's a lot of loopholes or ways to, to say no. gonna um, a lot of ways to sort of sidestep or disregard these laws without really anyone else picking up on it or paying attention. And so um, a huge question as to how cities are going to react uh, to SB 35's passage. And, and, you know, and we see the reaction uh, from folks who don't want any more housing in their communities. They may always be able to find a way, at least under the current system.
1: Um, Let's move on to the one number you need to know to sound intelligent about housing policy this week. And go ahead, I'll tee you up.
2: Yeah, so what's that number, Matt?
1: It is 23%.
2: And what's so big, what's such a big deal about 23%? (laughs) Uh,
1: That is the percentage of Californians uh, that are poor once you factor in housing costs. That's according to the Supplemental Poverty Measure, which is an alternative measure of poverty released by census uh, that attempts to incorporate the insane cost of living in areas like the Bay Area, Los Angeles, San Diego, up and down the state.
2: Yeah, and what's interesting about that to me is when, you know, I know, uh, you know, how bad sort of the regular official measure of poverty is, um, but when you use that, it you know, ranks in the teens, and then once you include housing, um, we vault to the top of the list, and I tend to use that a, a lot, I use it in my presentation, talking about that a lot It's like a really instructive measure to show How much um, high housing costs matter, um, particularly to people sort of at the poverty line or close to it uh, uh, in terms of forcing them to be in a position where they don't have a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of money to to spend on other things.
1: That's right. Um, And I'll self-promotionally plug. I wrote a piece about this last week and probably the the one of the more popular things people took away from the piece was this graphic I created where if you assigned everybody the cost of living that renters in Fresno have, um, what happens to the state poverty rate? And it drops dramatically, right? So it goes from 23% to about 14%, which is about the the US average um, under this new measure. And that's uh, more than 2 million people lifted out of poverty.
2: Which is a really significant, obviously a really significant number on its face, but it's also interesting to me as I was reading through your story about how closely that matches with sort of the people that, a number of people who are considered rent burdened in the state. That's about 1.7 million. And and I'm sorry, not just rent burdened, severely rent burdened. So those who are paying more than half their income on rent, right? Um, And so... You know um while it's while it's certainly a, a clear hypothetical to imagine that uh everywhere in California had rents like rents like Fresno, it's not un- that that amount of money is not like unimaginable right It's someone in California people in california are paying that amount that lower amount for for for, for rent and you know just reducing our rents that 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 amount would make uh, an unbelievable difference in in so many people's lives.
1: Hopefully we could get, like, sponsorship from the Fresno Tourism Board um, (laughs) (laughs) for the podcast. We're still waiting on undies, so. um, (laughs) Hit us up. Yeah, hit us up, Fresno. Um, All right. Now we will solve the Bay Area housing crisis. Um, let's, Let's talk about Brisbane.
2: You might not have heard of Brisbane or might have only heard of the Australian version of Brisbane because the Bay Area version of Brisbane has only 4,700 people. Teeny tiny. Really small, right? And so um, in Brisbane, there's a a project called the Baylands that's been uh, on the docket um, for decades. And this is on a piece of land uh, that's vacant, which is very rare in the Bay Area. Um, And there is a Caltrain stop that bisects this piece of land, um, and when you're standing on the land, you can not only see San Francisco, uh, you can also see the Bay. And so, uh, based on every sort of measure that planners and environmentalists and everyone who says that we need to do things to to, to build housing, this is the place, man. It it's, hits all. It's,
1: the, of the, it's the platonic ideal of a housing development in the Bay Area.
2: It happens. Absolutely is now, um, but man, it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> or at least, it's probably not going to happen in the way that um, in the way that the developer has proposed it now. Uh, and so, there are a number of reasons for that. Um, well, uh,
1: just hold up. I, I don't know if uh, we covered this. How how big is the development, and how many people would it bring in?
2: Sure. So the development it would be roughly uh, 40 well, it would be 4400 new homes and it would also have some commercial and other components to it, but the kind of the, the main advantage is these 4400 new new homes which would again because Brisbane is so small would triple the city's population.
1: It's a big change. Yes. And and let's go through the reasons why this is not going to happen.
2: Right. So um, I think the primary reason, of of course, is that, you know, um, Brisbane gets to decide and, you know, such a small community does not seem inclined um, to support, uh, you know, housing uh, uh, at that size or at that density. In fact, even the developer told me when I was writing the story about this project over the summer that, you know, the developer doesn't expect 4,400 new homes to be approved on this on this piece of land. So the primary reason is that the city, which is in charge, is not going to not going to approve something so large. Um, uh, you know, even though I mean the the property could in theory support significant even you know even higher densities, but at this rate, um, it's 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 not you know not going to happen, or at least you know to the point that the developer is even willing to tell me that it isn't. Um, you know, there are some environmental concerns. Uh, this you know piece of land is vacant for a reason. It used to be a a uh, a a rail yard uh and a part of it not where the houses are planned but a different section of it used to be a a landfill and so you know um you sort of have to trust that regulators would would do a good job of saying this 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 parcel's clean uh before mm-hmm. you know for before building were to be allowed to happen uh, but that's kind of a point of whether you trust regulators or not right um mm-hmm. and so so that and so and again you know I don't want to I don't want to mitigate it e- I think, to ridicule this project as a um, sort of NIMBY-like paradise thing, right, or like a classic NIMBY yeah. thing. But I, you know, but I think, um, you know, I, 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 there, I think there's legitimate angst um, among the, the community for a project that would be so large. Um and it's very. I mean, it isn't just like, oh, we're adding, you know, 200 units in, in San Francisco. It's adding you know, such a large amount of of town.
1: Are most of the residents there long time residents? I mean, are are, it's, is it mostly older homeowners who have been there 20, 30 years?
2: Yeah. I don't know. I don't know the exact break, breakdown of the town. I could tell you those who are the most politically involved, however, certainly are are those who have been there a long time.
1: Um, Were you surprised that you found yourself empathizing a little bit with homeowners who opposed the project?
2: No, because I think I think and I've tried to bring this to my reporting too. Uh, you know, ch- change is hard, man. And, yeah. um, and and also not just that people have a lot wrapped up into their homes. I mean, yeah. a lot of a lot of people, their whole wealth is their is their house. And so you can understand why um, change, whether or not it would actually affect the property value. Yeah. The which, fact which that like it yeah, wouldn't. Yeah, r- right but but again just the idea of change and just the yeah. idea of something that could possibly affect your property value which is your whole wealth your whole nest egg what you want to you know leave for yourself and your children i mean so like I can understand you know I, and again I've tried to bring this to some some to my reporting as well that the idea that you know some empathy here um granted you know um i, I uh, it's it's it's, it's, it's Hard to argue that um, we should not also empathize with those who are paying more than half their income on rent, yes. um, those who are homeless, and those who can't afford to move to where job opportunities are. Yes. Right? Those are huge, huge problems, and empathy should be rightly reserved for those, for, for you know, for those folks. But I don't want to, I, I don't want to, I don't want to undersell, you know, the fact that that, that people do, you know, uh, feel that change is hard, and the amount of wealth that people have locked into um, uh, their homes.
1: Uh, let's talk about, I I like this phrase, the fiscalization of land.
2: Yeah, man. You just, just really. I've
1: killed it. Last last week I got a compliment over Rena failure, which I, you didn't pick up on the brilliance of that pun, but it was a decent pun. Um, Okay. And, uh, I couldn't think of anything for fiscal. There you go. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. uh, most people tune in for the puns, but anyway, fiscalization of land, no pun. (laughs)
2: Right. So let, let's start talking about why the states kind of to blame here um, in some ways. So so uh, everyone uh, is familiar with Proposition 13, right? Proposition 13 is a you know big uh, tax property tax measure which limits tax rates to one percent of a home's taxable value and then restricts how quickly that that those taxes could increase to a maximum of two percent a year. And so why does that matter here, right? On on this Brisbane project, well. Um, the city decided to hire a consultant to see how much you know, tax money, new revenue they would get from this proposal. And What they found is that under the developer's plan, the city would make about a million dollars a year net in, uh, in new tax revenue. The, but the city also asked the consultant, hey, how about you look at a project that you know, has a lot more commercial development, has a bigger hotel component, and also has zero houses. Zero houses, right? Mm-hmm. And what the consultant found is the city would make a whopping $8.7 a year in new tax revenue from a plan that had no houses in it. And just to keep in context here, this is a city with a budget of $16 million a year, right? Yeah. So that distinction, exactly. that like nearly $8.7 it's big, it's huge, it's huge. And so that distinct that like distinct eight million dollars for a city of forty seven less than five thousand people. I mean god god knows how many more parks you can build with you know with all that much all that more money, right? And so um you know the problem here is that um you know it, you know, it costs m- cities money to have residents in them. You have to pay for police and fire and roads and all these things and cost them less um to have uh you know commercial development and hotel development. But it's not just that there's costs, it's the revenue. As we said, they don't get a lot of pro- property tax money. Mm. But hotel hotel tax dollars, cities get to keep all of it, and as a result, they're much more fiscally incentivized, if you will, um, to support the the you know the the retail and the hotels than they are the houses. And that's a problem that's of the state's doing. You know, that's the state's tax structure has set this up so that uh, cities have have more of a financial interest in supporting things that are not housing.
1: Uh, Maybe some hopeful audience members would think, well, the state just passed a slew of bills that are aimed to compel cities like Brisbane to take on their fair share of housing. Is there any element of the housing package that would either coerce or encourage Brisbane to approve this project? No. Yeah, you'd kill it with these pauses. You you absolutely do.
2: That was that was really pregnant that pause.
1: That project is not SB thirty five eligible.
2: It, right, for the reason that we sort of talked about before, that that the um, that the land is not zoned for for housing, uh, and so as a result, it wouldn't apply. And not just with with Prop thirteen, I and mean, we have another law that I want to talk about too yes. that has, that is not really you know is sort of on paper supposed to be something that 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 induces housing, but the reality is not has not kept up with that, and that's. And that's... That's that's bill 375. And so this was a law that was passed in 2008. And what it was supposed to do was align uh, the state's transportation policy with its housing policy so that the very ambitious environmental goals that we have could be met. And as I've tried to say and report a million times. Um, we have these very ambitious environmental goals to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by a zillion percent in 2030 and 2050, and we're not going to meet it, every estimate says this, without a dramatic increase in density in existing cities or in building around transit lines. The numbers just, just don't work. And so what SB 375 does is it says, oh, okay, we recognize this, and every region has to plan uh, for their their transit and their housing to be in these sort of um, dense urban areas. And um, there's a big fight recently uh, in, in the Bay Area about whether this Brisbane project should be included or not. And at the end of the day, uh, it was included. So in the Bay Area's plan to meet the, their, their, their housing needs, their transportation needs, and their climate change needs, these 4,400 units uh, in Brisbane um, are as part of the plan. But of course, that doesn't mean anything. That doesn't mean anything. It means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. And so... You know, it, it, it doesn't mean anything for whether the project's actually going to be approved or not. Um, mm-hmm. And and so it's a, you know it's a huge it's a sort of what we were saying before about about housing plans in general is there's a lack of teeth uh, in these you know at the state level no carrots no sticks or very few of them to ensure that the projects that the state says it needs to meet environmental goals meet affordability goals meet every other goal um, actually happens.
1: Uh, where does the Brisbane development kind of currently stand in the development pipeline, and do, do you think it ever gets built in the so, near future?
2: So um, the 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 city was expected sometime over the summer to make a big decision whether they were going to support any housing at all on the land. Uh, and then somewhat hilariously, they, they punted that decision Um because they wanted to see what the state was going to do with its housing legislation package, which, again, at no point did it ever include anything that would have affected the Brisbane project. So that was certainly a punt, um, a very far punt, right? Um, and at the end of the day, I think um, it's been very clear that whatever the city decides to do, it's going to go to a referendum. So basically all the Brisbane residents or all Brisbane registered voters, the less than 4,700 people, are going to be, ultimately decide the fate of this uh, of this very regionally important project.
1: And with that, um, let's talk to Kim Mike Cutler.
2: So we're here with Kim Mike Cutler, who is a uh, Bay Area journalist and works for a venture capital firm who has written a ton about um, housing issues in San Francisco and the region for a number of years. And we're very excited to have you here. Thanks. Thanks for coming.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
2: So uh, why don't we start? Can you tell us what you think the biggest misconception people sort of living in San Francisco and and the region have about housing there?
0: Um, I think that, I mean, it it, it often falls along um, generational lines, but there's definitely a conception that like, oh, people should just go elsewhere. They shouldn't come here. Um, You know, but the thing is like, you know, California, like in in terms of the number of Californians that have been born in the last three, you know, 10 years, it's something like 3 million births, like almost 300, I think it's like 300,000 births a year. Um, And so the population itself is growing. um, And, and, you know, we're only producing, you know, maybe 80,000 housing units a year statewide when we should be doing like 180K, given the population growth. And then, you know, people that are immigrating in both domestically and internationally um so i mean i think that's you know i think that's a you know like a lot of the people that we are affecting are actually you know they're just californians children of californians and they're also immigrants
1: yeah for for the record um liam isn't a californian i'm just putting that okay out there. <laughs> okay I, I am, uh... though. So I, I completely you're, you're, understand you're, you're, you're where you're coming long, yeah. from. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: Um, but it's also like, I mean, it's also very American, you know, like, you, like people move freely around this country. Yes. That is kind yeah. of somewhat of the ethos of what this country was founded on.
1: Yes, or at least used to. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I'm wondering what's the biggest misconception that people outside the Bay Area have about? the Bay Area housing situation. What what frustrates you in terms of how people outside the region perceive it?
0: Um. So, I mean, I think the thing that I get, I get pretty frustrated about when people come from outside is they see, you know, they come to San Francisco and they see, or they like walk around um, the Tenderloin or on Powell Street BART Station and they see this huge just discrepancy and in- inequity in um, wealth. You see people who are, experiencing homelessness next to these new towers and they kind of like jump to this conclusion that it's you know like oh it's this industry that's causing it and i'm not gonna like i totally think that you know um income inequality wealth inequality is absolutely 100 percent part of this conversation um however there's a lot of other things that are going on underneath the surface in terms of federal housing policy state tax policy and local zoning policy um that that have produced the outcomes that we've seen like for example you know if you um you know go back into the san francisco chronicle archives or you do a basic ngram search in google books and you look um which is like a record of all you know google's index of all the books they've ever scanned and recorded um and you kind of look at mentions of homelessness and um People without homes, like that, those mentions spike in like the early nineteen eighties. Like it wasn't it, mm. you know, when you see people without housing, that's like a, you know, it, 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 to some extent, it, it is it is a, a temporal phenomenon that emerged like a generation ago as a consequence of a number of decisions that we, as an American and California society, made, um, where we significantly undercut. Um, resources for for low income housing and public housing at the same time, you know, through a number of other changes, both um, in federal housing policy and if, and 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 like the private, you know, banking sector, that we really turned housing into this um, kind of phenomenal asset
2: class. Yeah. So what did what did the state do to screw this up?
0: <laughs> I mean, what is I mean, what, what is the state? I don't know. I mean, like, yeah. state, like that's a, yeah. That's a very
2: what yeah. Is so what state? what what state policies and we can include the pro- propositions, right? So like, but what what state policies have have contributed to why this is so messed up?
1: You can tell us how much you love Prop Thirteen, Kim.
0: Oh, I mean, well, there's a. I mean, how where do we want to start? I mean, we didn't start before there. I mean, like, there's, um, you know, there were there are actually a number of state supreme court decisions, um, that preceded proposition 13 where you know a judge you know a ju- the, the state supreme court would rule that you know a city didn't have to if if a city downzoned a person's property it wouldn't have to compensate the property owner for um, you know reducing the financial value of their asset right and that's you know that's different mm-hmm. than say from what i understand in Washington state you know there's a relationship between the financial value of the land parcel and if you're going to you know, demand more affordability requirements, you by law, by state law, have to offer more height and more density. Whereas we had to go through like a two or three year, like a many, many year process, you know, creating our own kind of custom legislative version of that in San Francisco. Um, But, you know, there, you know, there there were downzonings in the early seventies to the mid seventies. And that was happening amid a context of, um, you know, on a more progressive side, like serious environmental concerns, Um, that, you know, we were destroying, you know, the bay and the quality of air and the quality of water here. Um, and you can see like, even this week, you know, those constraints are, are real. Like, I mean, we're seeing that with the fire damage, um, that, that, that's, that's a real concern. Um, and then on the less progressive side and the more, um, you know, the more, I don't know what to call it, but like, you know, a, f- a couple years after fair housing, the Fair Housing Act was passed in 1968. I mean, magically, all these zoning requirements appear all over America and all over California, downzoning everything because you can't, you know, explicitly engage in any of the practices that were that that were commonplace in both the, you know, the private real estate in- industry and then also encouraged by government policy, um, you know, from the 40s. Through the '60s, you know, which includes things like blockbusting and redlining and all of that.
2: So, do you can you give any sort of concrete example, and particularly from from, from like sort of how your, maybe your favorite concrete example for how state policy that was perhaps put into place in the '70s is is uh, it, you know affects things now?
0: Um, I mean, I mean, for, I mean, Prop 13 is the most obvious example. It's like, I mean, like literally every at every like you know, level as a Californian that I've engaged with, you know, public services of any sort, you actually feel, you can feel it at every level. Like when I was five or six and going to elementary school, um, you know, I remember the PE teachers and the art teachers telling us that like, you know, we needed to go out and fundraise and go door to door or else they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't have a job right? <laughs> because like all of those extracurricular services were what got cut um, when you didn't have, you know, sufficient revenue to cover, you know, the cost of, you know, paying teachers, and then you look at housing prices today, and, um, you know, Prop 13 intersects with a lot of, you know, and it doesn't only just get, you know, capitalized into housing prices; it also factors mm-hmm. into, you know, people's incentives to make certain decisions or other, you know, not make certain uh, other decisions. So, like, you know, if your, if your assessment is going to be the same or not the same but like capped forever um and your city can't you know necessarily it's it's less lucrative from a tax revenue collection perspective to approve housing right um than it is to approve office space and you know as long as and and it's not like any and like more housing just represents more traffic and more impacts in schools to you. And you don't have to you don't bear any consequences from it. And in fact, like you probably enhance your own returns on your own real estate on it. Like, why would you why would you approve more housing? Right.
1: Do you see attitudes on Prop 13 shifting? I mean, in a meaningful way, right? Especially as like, more. go ahead.
0: I don't know. We'd have to. You'd have to run polls on it. I mean, it's yeah. obviously like in no way, and in, in, in no way at all. Am I suggesting like it, you know, be repealed or anything? Like I think that there, people want to have security in in their housing. That's a totally understandable aspect of it. But like, it, it, its targeting was too broad and too. It was too blunt an instrument.
2: I, I, I'm curious how, what you think about what the state has done recently um do you think that you know that this was good uh or meaningful in any way
0: yeah i mean i think I, i think i mean you would have you would have some pretty good historical but like i mean my it's my understanding that this is like the biggest significant package probably in you know probably decades maybe um you know, it 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 was an acknowledgement from legislators around the entire state of California that this is a really serious issue. It's serious from um, an equity perspective. It's serious from an economic growth perspective. Uh, it's serious from a quality of life perspective. It's serious for it's serious for a whole, you know, it's whole generations of people. Um, so I'm I'm glad that it happened. I think you know there's obviously more to be done. Um, you know, like, with SB2 getting, like, a couple hundred million dollars of, like, I mean, that doesn't put us where we were before the recession. And then, yeah. likewise, you know, SB35 is probably good for, like, that perfect project that matches, you know, the existing zoning, you know, existing zoning requirements of the city already. Um, and there's, you know, it's unclear to me how many projects like that exist in actual like the actual messiness of right getting yeah. a project approved yeah yeah i
1: i'm wondering so on this state housing package this was one of the first times that kind of local yes in my backyard groups which obviously have some origins in the bay area kind of engaged on the on the state level i mean have those groups been successful locally
0: i mean i think it's a really i mean i would have based on everything that i read and understood about california land use policy and the direction that it's gone in for the last 40 years like the fact that they've been able to do as much as they have in three is is pretty significant like changing the whole discourse you know i I think changing the 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 discourse around housing among a whole generation is is really important like getting people to be comfortable with the idea that you know you know, yes, you own your home or whatever, but that doesn't give you the right to, like, control every other, <laughs> um, you know, parcel of land in your, your neighborhood. Because that those represent, those could represent more homes for other people and more opportunities, more, you know, more opportunities for other people to, um, you know, enjoy, like, the economic um the economic prosperity that exists here, the cultural amenities that exist here. Um, and it's a way for other people like to be open to the idea that like, yes, like other people have a place here and can contribute to our, our community.
2: Huh.
1: Huh. It, it, this is an incredibly stupid question, but I, I want you to do it anyway. If you if you could rank these three conflicts in terms of how kind of vitriolic they are in the Bay Area, uh, one baby boomer millennial. Two, um, homeowner-renter. Obviously, there's overlap here. Um, and uh, three, I feel like Rick Perry. I'm blanking on the third, <laughs> the, the third one I had in mind. Tech,
2: uh, tech non-tech? That, that's your tech? what it was.
1: Yes, it yeah. was tech non-tech. So,
2: mind so, melt, man. We got a mind melt going. Yeah, so you're
1: yeah. slowly evolving to the same th- person. R- <laughs> Rate those for us in incredibly objective it- fashion.
0: Oh no! I mean, I would say yeah. The tech, non-tech, and baby boomer millennial are like they're probably equal up there. Really? Yeah.
2: So uh, what, that's ahead, a then. decent de- decent segue to w- <laughs> what do you think like the responsibility of tech is in dealing with this problem?
0: Um, did, uh, this is a different question for local and state, I guess. Um. So, I mean, I think, you know, they have to be, like, if they if they think they're going to want to hire this many people, I think they need to be really straightforward and really upfront with the public and the municipalities. Like, these are our expectations for hiring, and therefore these are, yeah, I'm talking about the big companies, yeah. um, to help them kind of guide the way in terms of, um, you know, planning, like, more coordinated planning on that. And I also think, like, it's very easy for the leaders of the industry to be like, Oh, just build more housing. Like why can't the politicians blah, blah, blah. but they're also not doing enough to say they're not really doing enough to, um, recognize the fact that they need to be offering and including economic opportunities for the people who are already here. And they do a terrible, I mean, they just do a terrible job at that.
2: What, what <laughs> do you mean that by mean, that? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um, what what economic opportunities are you talking about? And, and well, making what, sure what that people... they're. I mean,
0: like like what what from a community perspective. I mean, community. I mean, like a lot of local communities are frustrated. They're like, okay, well, you got this campus, but then, are you, hiring, people out of our school systems, or are you? I mean, like I'm I'm really thinking I'm thinking about um you know a handful of communities like, you know parts of San Francisco East Palo Alto like, um. Uh, of San Jose, maybe Oakland, like, you know, understanding that, like, that people need to have, um, upwardly mobile job opportunities that lead to, you know, permanent employment at these companies. Um, and it needs to be more than a cosmetic thing. Um, and I think if they could show some serious intention or demonstrate that while also, you know, coordinating more with some of the city and regional governments. I'm like, hey, well, if you think you're going to hire 10,000 people in the next however many years, like maybe you should communicate. Like, you know, what what does the what do the local regional governments and then you know both this the city where that you know the, that company is headquartered and also the adjacent cities need to know about like how much housing they should plan around that. And I also think like, I mean, that's one of the issues with like their regional housing needs assessment metric, like RENA, Um, you know, it's only updated once every seven years. And I think that, you know, if a city approves a giant campus, like maybe their numbers should be updated (laughs) to reflect that worsening jobs to housing ratio.
2: So, Kim, are you optimistic, um, uh, either at the local or the state level, that these issues will be resolved. There'll be meaning, meaningful progress made in the coming years.
0: Um, I mean, I think what we've done is like engage the conversation at a at a at a very like a very we've we've moved it in a very um, profound way, but it's still also a relatively simple conversation to just say, okay, let's just build as much as the population is growing, <laughs> which is right. you know less like. That, you know, that will keep things, you know, at a steady state. But if people want to have more than that, then they need to have probably a more serious conversation about to say the way, like, um, you know, tax is structured or the way infrastructure is paid for here. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And that's that's a harder conversation. That's a significantly harder.
2: All right. Um, Liam, you got anything yeah. else? And no, anything else you want to add, Kim?
0: Um, no, I'm good. All
2: right. Okay. Uh, um, Kim, my colors, thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thank you.
1: Thanks, Kim. No problem.